0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Your
1: child is your art. Your art is your child. Your child is in a burning building. Are you going to stand by the sidewalk and wait for the authorities to come? Uh, Or are you going to go in the burning building and 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 save your child. I, I don't know. You know, if you're gonna stand by the sidewalk and wait for the authorities to come, are you gonna be able to live with yourself if that building comes crashing down? And you know, I want to walk through the fire because I can't imagine not doing this thing. And so when people are looking for some sort of safe way, or or when people ask me if they should write a book or something, my response is always you do it if you have no choice, you do it because you you feel it so deep inside of you. And it's such a strong feeling that you just can't see any other way. And so and that's the conclusion of, of that post. And that's the way that I still feel about this is, is that, no, I don't recommend this life. If you're looking for security, if you're looking for a sure thing, um, I don't recommend this. But if you just have this burning inside of you. You feel like you have no choice. Then what? You don't. You know, then you don't have any choice. So what are you going to do? You know you have to do it.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who have started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
5: So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
6: Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation
7: is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com/slash WonderSuite.
0: Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age, led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: David, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Srini, I have listened to this podcast so many times. It's it's a huge honor to actually be on
2: it. <laughs> well, uh, one, thank you for for those kind words. Uh, so you and I, I met because we're both prolific writers on Medium. Uh, I think we write about similar subjects. We have very similar interests, and I think that you have really. Uh, an interesting and really sort of diverse career as a creative. I think in in many ways you embody the realities of a creative career, all of which we will get into. But before we get into all that, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on your life and the choices that you've made with your career?
1: Ah, where did I grow up? Uh, You know, when you talk about God making a sorting error when putting you with your family, I feel like God made a sorting error Uh, putting me where I grew up, which was uh, in Nebraska. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. So uh, kind of a suburban upbringing, actually at the end of a one eighth mile long dead end street on top of a hill. So uh, kind of isolated upbringing, though, you know, not like a farm or anything. Um, And I will say that that upbringing I think really put some mental programming in me that I've really had to work to undo over the years. Uh, probably most, you know, uh, most strongly that when it came to creations, things that people make, whether it's a, a movie or a, um, or a video game or a, a book, I think it was it was a very long time. I was well into my adulthood before I met anybody who made those things, you know. And so for me, that meant that those things kind of came from another world. Uh, They came from people that weren't human. You know, only people in movies uh, did things like make movies. You know, there there were people that I knew, you know, people that I knew, people in my neighborhood lived your typical middle class lifestyle uh, where they might have a secure job. My dad worked at the same job for thirty seven years, and you know they had their work life and then they they'd come home and work wasn't something that they that they were particularly passionate about but it it paid the bills and and helped them get by and um i so how it actually uh influenced me is is hard to say i mean I will say that when I do meet some somebody from Nebraska while there's a lot that we don't have in common in terms of of mindset, there's also a lot as far as uh, know, there's this like this Midwestern um, reliability or or, uh, or or presence just from from not living in a particularly stimulating place. Perhaps uh, I will say also though that Omaha, Nebraska, is the home of Warren Buffett, and for about three years after college, I lived down the street from Warren Buffett. And so I would go jogging and I'd, you know, right where his house was, was about the right point for me to take a break. And so I'd kind of like walk by his house and, you know, maybe peek through the hedges a little bit or something, I'm ashamed to admit. But, um, you know, his presence was, was always there in Omaha. Uh, my dad worked for a Berkshire Hathaway owned company. Um, and I will say that, while I didn't, you know, aspire to be the richest man in the world or anything, uh, I have learned a lot. I think I learned a lot from having his presence be an important part of the place where I lived. In that he was somebody who was a very individual. You know, he he could have uh, spent all of his career working on Wall Street, but he chose to live in Omaha. He had a an original approach to in investing. Uh, he really loved what he did and spent. Uh, all of his time doing it, and uh, I i feel like I might have learned something from that as well. So if anything, a lot of what I am today is a reaction against uh, the social programming that I experienced and have had to fight to get myself out of from gr- growing up in Nebraska. Uh, but then there, I guess there's a, that Warren Buffett element a, a, as well, yeah. uh, which was mm-hmm. to you know get me to think about Uh, my own individual way of approaching things.
2: How did you undo the social programming? Like what were the things that caused it to change?
1: Yeah. I think the, the first moment that I realized that there was social, social programming to be undone, it was a slow process because my first college that I chose uh, was in the middle of Nebraska It was called University of Nebraska at Kearney. And uh, listeners who are from places that refer to places like Nebraska as a flyover state um, might be surprised to learn that a place like Omaha is very different from a place like Kearney. Uh, And so I didn't put a lot of thought into choosing a college. It wasn't something that uh, I, I really got a lot of guidance on. Uh, and so I just kind of randomly chose this college because it was the one that everybody I went to high school with was not going to. <laughs> and so when I arrived there, it was my first contact with the uh, concept that you could get in a car, drive for two hours and be in a completely different culture. Uh, because in Carney, I was the city slicker. Um, you know, everybody's chewing tobacco, listening to country music, Uh, hunting raccoons for recreation. I'm not even exaggerating. And so it it, it turned out to be the wrong choice for me. And I ended up transferring um, to a different school. And then through that school, I ended up doing a a study abroad in Rome, Italy. Now, I think that uh, probably a lot of your listeners have, have gone on study abroads, and maybe they had a similar experience. But mine was that that was my first contact with this idea that wow there are very different ways to uh, approaching life and to thinking about life um and yes i had had contact with that in you know in the middle of nebraska but this time it felt right or elements of it felt very right that oh you can do something with your free time besides watch football uh you know and you can you sit in a square and sketch people that you see or or whatever and it wasn't necessarily like everything clicked at once but it was the opening of pandora's box it was a moment where i said to myself like oh oh shit like this this has blown my brain wide open there's no way to go back i'm gonna have to rethink every little aspect of life and i can tell it's gonna take a very very long time And that was, you know, uh, September 11th happened while I was there. So it was, you know, 17 years ago. Uh, And I'm I'm still in that process, though things are a lot more solidified um, than they were before. And so I think, you know, I recognize that. And then from that point, it has been trial and error, trying to reconcile differences between, uh, what I imagine that the world could be like, or what I imagine that I could be like, and what the world around me is trying to tell me that I should be like, or that the world should be like. And it's been a trial and error process that I have, um, I've got the hang of a lot of it, but it's an ongoing, uh, learning process.
2: Yeah. Uh, what role do, does having uh, somebody like a dad who's had a job at the same company for 37 years, uh, I, I think we, we share something very common here because my dad is a college professor, very similar. You, know, mm-hmm. you get tenure and that's it. You're kind of done. That is your job for life. And yet you and I have chosen uh, paths and uh, trajectories in which the whole idea of a job for life is, there's no such thing in the world that you and I play in. And I wonder when something has been such a deeply embedded part of your reality, how you gradually unwind that, uh, and, and and how does it play out in the relationships you have with your parents?
1: Yeah, I mean, such a deeply embedded part of my reality that it, it took me a long time to even realize that it was a part of my reality, you know, the sort of a, a this is water type of thing. Um, I will say like one thing that I'm really, really thankful for is that I'm a, a financially literate and responsible person. Um I was always taught to save my money and to invest it well, and uh, you know, not to to avoid debt, things like that. And, and I've I've stuck to those things. Uh, now, the thing that happened though is that then when I started off uh, working in my twenties, I always had this thing ground into me, like, yeah, save this much each year in your Roth IRA. And uh, you know, by by such and such uh, age, you're going to have a million dollars or or whatever. And so, I, for whatever reason, was very um, paranoid about that, and in, in in that I would uh, eat eighty cent banquet uh, frozen meals for lunch most days, and then I would just sock away everything I possibly could in uh, my four hundred one k and in in my investment account and um and and then it you know i happened to buy google and apple and so uh when it did come time to to where i had been a professional for you know in, in, in the so called real world for maybe 6 years or so and then i got fired uh i had a pretty good nest egg of retirement savings because of being financially responsible, the combination of being financially responsible and also being lucky as far as timing goes, you know, being in one of the greatest bull markets and, and picking a couple of the best stocks that I possibly could. And so when I, when I got fired, I I, I looked at my bank, uh, my retirement account and saw, well, I've got $130,000, which is either a lot of money or not very much money to some people. Um, and it, when it came time to think about, you know, going to find another job, and that's the type of thing that I would would be encouraged to do my, by my parents, or, or that's what they would kind of expect that I would do is, you know, go get another job. You got to have a job if you're not if you don't have a job. Um, this wasn't what they, what was said, but this was my programming or the message that I got was that if you don't have a job, you kind of don't exist. Um, and and so the first few weeks of being without a job was was really. Like making sure that like I still existed, (laughs) like, oh, I didn't just burst into flames because I got fired from my job and then didn't even look for a job, you know, those those first few weeks or so. And so um, I had to undo that, that programming. Uh, and then when it came time to, to, to look for another, another job or after, after actually immediately upon getting fired from that job, uh, I thanked my boss because um, that moment I knew that I actually didn't want to be working there, that I didn't want to be working for anybody else. But I had just had such intense programming, cultural programming in my brain that I was afraid to leave and let go myself. And so I immediately, uh, again, was in the, this this uh, stage where I realized that, oh, wow, uh, I'm going to need to figure some things out here and it's going to take me a very long time. And so I cashed out like $40,000 worth of stock and and told myself, OK, you have an entire year to just follow what's interesting to you, to to reconnect with curiosity, to reconnect with that feeling that I had when I was alone in my room uh, drawing as the hours passed and just to rediscover that feeling because it had just, it had been, um, I was so passionate as a child about things such as drawing and and at this stage I had forgotten what it was like to be passionate about something uh, because I was always working uh, at somebody else's uh, pace. And um, and so I I gave myself a year to follow what was interesting to me. Now, my parents um, didn't necessarily understand that, uh, but they weren't, you know, they didn't pressure me to uh, to do something else. I I do remember conversations of, oh, well, you know, after, you know, at what point do you think you're you're you might just go look for a job uh, after doing this thing on your own for a while? And I would, you know, search through the tributaries of potential cause and effect in my mind, and I would just reach this conclusion: like, I don't, I don't think that's ever going to happen, um, because I had, I had reconnected with that curiosity, I had reconnected with that passion, and when I extrapolated what was happening in the present into the future, uh, all I could see was how much I was learning every day. And how much every time I learned something new, I also learned that there was way more that I wanted to learn, and that I couldn't wait to learn tomorrow. And uh, and so, you know, fortunately, they didn't give me too much too much grief on that. Um, and uh, you know, they they, they listen to my podcast. They might be listening to this one even because they might have seen it on my on my social feed or something. So they've 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 become fans uh, o- over time. But it, it's definitely been uh, me. Living this life and making these decisions that uh, they don't necessarily understand that um, they probably wouldn't make themselves uh but they're still supportive of
2: yeah I think the the biggest thing for me uh, when I hear you say that is that they don't necessarily understand. And that's what I, I came to see with my own parents that, that their narratives were not from a place of malicious intent. It was just that I'm making choices that are completely out of their sort of, uh, worldview and their model of reality because of the fact that they were immigrants. They came here, you know, in the late like eighties or, or late or early nineties. And to them it was, we need to work hard. We need to get a, a paycheck. And, and you know, it was interesting last night. I, uh, Uh, when I landed at the Denver airport, I ended up taking a lift and the guy I was talking to was from Congo. And it, I I had such a uh, sort of moment of, being very humble when he told me that he basically left a place that was torn apart by civil war, and I was asking him how many hours a day he works, and he's like, "Yeah, he's like I do ten hours every single day." And I'm thinking to myself, "Wow, I should stop bitching about the things in my life." Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, a you know work ethic at a, at a level that I had never seen. Uh, do you have siblings? I do. I have a brother,
1: and he is in finance, um, and he is successful at it. From what I can what I can tell, he doesn't talk about his work a lot, but, you know, has a nice house and a nice car and a nice family. Uh, again, uh, a very different uh, mindset, a very different uh, way of approaching the world. Uh, actually, I was really shocked the other day. He texted me out of nowhere and was he had read my book and was saying how much he liked it and everything. And I was just blown away. Uh, cause it's, it, it, you know, he, he, he never also never seemed to really understand what I was doing or even be that concerned with, with what I was doing, or at least that was,
2: uh, my perception of it. Hmm. So uh, you mentioned, uh, growing up in the Midwest and uh, my sister happens to have gone to med school at, in Omaha. So I've spent a little bit of time there. Wow. And I, I think what struck me most uh, about omaha uh was, was one how how friendly everybody was but how there was a sense of community and there was a sense that you felt connected to something there in a way that you you don't and in, in big cities where you feel very anonymous oh, yeah. I, I wonder what did you learn about uh human relationships and and social dynamics from being in a small town environment
1: it's hard to know what i learned because uh, you know again it, it was it was water to me and uh I, I can relate to that idea of being connected, though, to a community. And not so much that I experienced that a lot when I was living, growing up in the suburbs or the you know, outskirts of Omaha, which was something that, especially in my adolescence, I grew to not enjoy because you couldn't really walk anywhere and everything was um, just seas of cookie-cutter houses and stuff. But then uh, after I graduated from college, and tried to get jobs other places, and ended up back in Omaha. And got a job at an architecture firm where I really knew uh, w- or was connected with all the construction of new buildings that was going on in the city. And the city was really uh, starting to boom at that time. And I was uh, overseeing this map where you know I knew where the the new performing arts center was going in, or where this new condo building was going in, and I and I knew. Uh, the players in civic life uh, and that was that certainly gave me some sense of connection that I haven't been been able to to replicate um, now so as far as uh, just general relationships I, I guess I will say though that you know when I moved to Silicon Valley and I lived in San Francisco it took me a while to realize that um, that the ideas that I had of like what a friend was were very different from from the ideas that I think most of the people that uh, that I met in California had of of what a friend was, or you know, or living in big cities in general, where you know you might have like a good friend and you see this person like once every couple months. And, uh, or, you know, maybe you've got 50 of these people or a 100 of these people all in the city, and you just kind of, um, you know, see them when you see them. And, uh, I very much prefer just having, uh, like if I had it perfect, it, there, you know, I'd have like a few good friends that I saw a couple times a week. Um, and, uh, you know, I live in Medellin, Colombia right now. One thing that I really enjoy is that if I go to a, a cafe that I'll, that, that I'll, probably run into somebody that I know. And I, I, I love that. I love this unplanned interactions. Um, another thing that gives me joy is if a friend can drop by unannounced, uh, which is not something that happens much now, but it's something I've, I've experienced in the past. And I, and I enjoyed that. Uh, I like to have a space for, for friendships. I like to, um, I like to have smaller group conversations uh, you know, one of the things that I remember experiencing living in San Francisco and part of it was probably my age of, you know, mid twenties and such was that it seemed like everybody was invited everywhere you went, you know, like <laughs> oh, we're going to go to, uh, you know, Oh, I have a friend, uh, who's coming into town from college and, uh, we're going to go to dinner. Do you want to come along? And I'm thinking like, you haven't seen this person in three years. You want me to join you for dinner? Isn't that going to be some sort of an imposition? Cause it would be for me. Yeah. And uh, the attitude was 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 not that way. So that was uh, an interesting juxtaposition for me.
2: Yeah. yeah. The other thing that struck me is that you mentioned uh, growing up around Warren Buffett, and I knew that you had spent time in Silicon Valley. And I wonder, when you have the contrast of a billionaire like Warren Buffett, who chooses to live in the same house for pretty much his entire life, doesn't spend his ungodly amounts of money on anything extravagant, And then you go to a place like Silicon Valley, where I think the opulence is fairly on display. I don't think people really hide the fact that they have money in Silicon Silicon Valley or in San Francisco. And I wonder, having been exposed to those two contrasts when it comes to wealth and to money, how did that impact your own narrative around wealth and money?
1: You know, I, I will say, though, that when I was in Silicon Valley... I feel like it was different from how it is now. I I arrived in Silicon Valley in August of 2005. I left uh, July 1st, 2008. So I was really there just as there was kind of be- becoming an upswing after the dot-com crash. And um, it was really fortuitous because it was very much an accident. I got discovered by a startup founder in... Uh, who was founding a startup in Silicon Valley and who was taking business trips to Omaha and decided that was where he was going to source a a designer. And so I got discovered by them and then moved out to Silicon Valley. And I had no real frame of reference about entrepreneurship or he would talk about venture capitalists. I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't know what that was. Um, But I I found myself in Silicon Valley and I found myself looking for some, some kind of community. And that's when I you know, got involved with the the tech community and realized that uh, a lot of the skills that I had built up in web design and design were were in demand and were interesting uh, to people. And so at that period of time, I feel like it, it really wasn't so much about wealth; that it was um, a, a lot about uh, passion. You know, you could go to these. Uh, I think this still exists, but it's probably nothing like it was. It was super happy dev house, which was a software development party from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. and it would just be in uh, this guy's house with uh, Red Bulls and, and beers and and such and people just hacking on whatever project they thought was interesting. And last time I went to one was um, several years ago and it was sponsored. It was like on the HP campus and there were all these different sponsors and it was this big thing and it wasn't this this intimate jam session that it, it was uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, so we, we, when it comes to d- displaying wealth, I don't, I don't f- recall there being a, a, huge difference there. I will say that one thing that was interesting to me, uh, was, was that when I arrived in California, I was spending time in California and I was making more money than, uh, than I had ever expected to make, uh, you know, and being able to get by easier than I had expected to, to get by, I was surprised at how few conversations had anything to do with money in that uh, if you ever watch a movie called Nebraska by a Nebraska director uh, named Alexander Payne, he nails Nebraska conversations, especially central Nebraska conversations, uh, in that there's these guys just sitting around in their chairs, lifelessly watching a football game, and their conversation is Oh, how long did it take you to drive from Holdridge? Three hours? Oh, three hours. That's good time. You still drive that Ford? Yeah, I still drive that Ford. What kind of gas mileage does it get? You know, and like every conversation is about money, or is a is about uh, you know what do you is this the, is this wine that you ordered a good deal, etc. And and I don't think that it's because people I mean people do have less money relative to um, certain things. Like I remember it being that, you know, a $300 flight suddenly, yeah, your, your cost of living might be higher in San Francisco, but if you're making some sort of a decent income, suddenly a $300 flight feels cheaper because it's just a smaller percentage of your income. So I thought it was interesting that, uh, um, in Silicon Valley, conversations weren't about money, and so I think that kind of actually opened up conversations to be about more things. People will talk more openly about their feelings. They people will talk about ideas, and that was a crazy thing. Was that was that I could I could say an idea? You know, in Nebraska, I would say an idea, and people would be like, "Yeah, but you know, this and that and the other thing, it's not going to work." And I would say an idea in Silicon Valley, and people. You know, I had to be I had to watch myself because I had friends who'd be like okay yeah we're gonna do it right now and and you know and and uh, sign up for this account here and we're gonna do this and and it it, uh, it, it catalyzed me uh, a, a lot so um, I I will say that um, I guess maybe there it seemed like there was a, a bit of a almost a neurotic obsession with money and with saving and with efficiency in a place like Nebraska and that in some ways uh, can be a detriment because it distracts you from other things that could actually make you more money or give you more happiness or things that money typically buys.
3: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing.
4: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people
2: are the easy button, Right.
6: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
5: Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide, from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have... Everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
0: Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair and vitality, muscle strength, and
2: dissect. So I think the, the first piece of writing that I distinctly remember reading of yours, uh, that really stayed with me, even though I'd read a bunch of your other stuff, but the one that really stayed with me and the one that made me want to say yes to having you on as a guest in the podcast was, I, I think you wrote a piece about the fact that you had basically had a career as a freelancer, as a creative for something like 10 years. And you said, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Right. Uh, why is that? And you're still, you still you still have this career, and I know you're a big advocate for creativity, as am I. And yet, at the same time, you have gone out and said you wouldn't recommend it to anybody. So why is that?
1: Yes. Um, so I guess I'll start with how that piece came came to happen, which was roughly a little bit more than a year ago. That was my 10-year anniversary of the day that I got fired, the day that I decided, hey, I'm not going to work for somebody else. I'm going to go do my own thing. And so i I started that writing that post. I sat down and really uh, was asking myself, okay, it's been ten years you you certainly expected to be farther along than you are now. Um, and so let's have an honest conversation with yourself here. Do you want to keep doing this? And so I sat down and and wrote that post as sort of like a personal journal thing, and it's funny because. I've, there's a few people who maybe complain that it turns around too quickly, that it turns around at the end because I'm talking about how I don't re- recommend it. Um, but it's really it was a personal blog, a personal journal. I didn't submit it to any publications, but I put it on Medium because uh, because I'm a writer. And that's part of the job of being a writer is to put your spill your guts out there and, and, <laughs> and put them on on the Internet. And uh, it was one of my most successful posts ever, 75,000 views or something uh, at, at some point. And, and, you know, three quarters of the way through this post, I had to like stop and, and cry for a bit because I, I'm, I, I, real, I came to this realization that, you know, while this has been very tough, um, while I am not where I expected to be, uh, that I really don't feel like I have any other choice. And so this is one of those things that when people talk to me about being a creator and uh, they're looking for this safe route and, uh, they're looking for, Oh yeah. How can I smoothly transition from my secure day job, uh, to, to being a creator and why I say being a creator, I don't necessarily mean like, Oh, I'm freelancing for clients. I mean, like you don't necessarily know exactly what it is that you want to be doing, but you know, that there's something and you need to discover it and you need to figure out a way to make a living doing it. Um, that's a long process. And I, you know, I, I hear all sorts of practical advice from other people about how to make a transition like that, how to do it safely. But I can't imagine it being that way. Cause I think of it like you, your, your child is your art. Your art is your child. Your child is in a burning building. Are you going to stand by the sidewalk and wait for the authorities to come? Uh, or are you going to go in the burning building And, and, and save your child. I I don't know, you know, if you're going to stand by the sidewalk and wait for the authorities to come, are you going to be able to live with yourself? If that building comes crashing down and, you know, I want to walk through the fire because I can't imagine not doing this thing. And so when people are looking for some sort of safe way, or, or when people ask me if they should write a book or something, my response is always, you do it if you have no choice, you do it because you you feel it so deep inside of you. And it's such a strong feeling that you just can't see any other way. And so that's the conclusion of of that post. And that's the way that I still feel about this is is that, no, I don't recommend this life. If you're looking for security, if you're looking for a sure thing, um, I don't recommend this. But if you just have this burning inside of you. You feel like you have no choice. Then what? You don't. You know. Then you don't have any choice. So what are you going to do? You know. You have to do it. Yeah.
2: I, I, thank you. One for for being so open and, and honest about your experience with this. I think that it's a really nice idea that we could package this up into formulas. I mean, it, it makes wonderful book titles like the Four Hour Work Week. <laughs> and yet, I, I think that it requires a a certain willingness to stand in uncertainty and also know that, okay, yes, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty and a lot of bad things can happen. But I also love uh, what my friend Rima Zaman says. She said, uncertainty is also a form of limitlessness. And we don't see that often when we're in the midst of uncertainty. Uh, You mentioned this feeling of not quite being where you want to be, which I I, I feel that I can relate to. Uh, I, I feel like I've seen people who have started their work long after we did, uh, who have bigger audiences and reach more listeners. I know. Doesn't
1: it just people, drive you nuts?
2: <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. And then, then there are people who've sold more books than I have, um, who haven't been around as long. And and yeah. you know, I, th- I think that tendency to compare is fueled uh, and amplified by by social media and the fact that we can see all of this. But yeah. what I wonder is how you reconcile that sense of, okay, I'm not quite where I want to be with... Yeah, but I still have this desire to to bring something into existence, and and how do you move forward uh, and balance those two things?
1: Yeah, I uh, I mean I see it as the wanting to be in any sort of place is is like the enemy of doing creative work i mean it's what it's what your book is about audience of one you know is is that if you're worried about some sort of results some sort of output um that that can distract you from reaching into yourself and doing work that's actually going to resonate with people now that doesn't mean that uh i guess i have the tendency maybe it's because of my nebraska upbringing to to try to find you know some sort of um financial viability to what I'm doing to find try to find that the product market fit, to try to make something that other people want. Um, you know, like the Walt Disney quote, we we don't make movies to make money, we make money to make more movies. Um, but the same but I think that I have a tendency to go towards that. So I have to constantly I have to very often uh check myself in a way. And that's kind of what that blog post when I sat down to write that uh and do the exploration, that's what it did for me was it 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 Help me reconnect with uh with how i really feel about doing this type of work about learning things about the world about having conversations on my podcast about reading books about uh mixing all that together into a world view and an understanding of the world and then putting that out in the world as as something uh that can be of use to people uh so yeah i i it's, it's a little bit of back and forth. I think I have a tendency to, to go towards trying to make things market viable, but I, but the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, um, is, is the thing about, uh, reconnecting with my curiosity and my passion for things and, and moving forward with that. And, um, you know, it's tough because, you know, I'm 39 years old. I don't have uh, a family. It's not necessarily something that like I feel any sort of drive to, to have, but it's, you, you, you start to look at, you compare yourself and you look at other people and you look at where people are with, with their lives in, in various things. And, and you can't help, but, but make those comparisons. Um, now, fortunately, when I do remind myself to, to reach in and, and, and find that truth to find my truth that does make my work more resonant like i said that that blog post where i really sat down and uh tried to be as honest with myself as i could that really resonated with a lot of people uh, it apparently resonated with you uh, you know some people hated it but uh, a lot of people really loved it and uh, i i think that's wonderful and i think that's where um that's where great work comes from is that you are able to find that audience of one uh and to really be honest with that audience member and just by virtue of the nature of the universe, that is going to connect with other people. You know, you don't you don't hear like, oh, people in Madagascar eat through their ears or uh, you know, like p- humans are, are similar to one another, no, no matter where they are. And, and there's a lot of universality in our emotions and such. And so when you are uh, honest with yourself, you make things that resonate with other people.
2: So you mentioned the family piece, uh, what else have you had to give up to live this life that you've chosen to live?
3: Yeah.
1: Well, uh, you know, it was fun when I was making good money in Silicon Valley and I was flying around going to conferences and, and, uh, you know, I had to let go of that being a priority in my life. You know, I still have a, a nice life. Um, I I left the country. <laughs> That's a thing. I live in Colombia, and uh, you know, a, a major motivation of that was that you know three was that three years ago I looked at uh, what I had done so far, and I looked at what it was that I enjoyed and what uh, what I felt I could that I was well equipped to do something for the world with, and I settled in on okay, podcasting and writing. I'm going to double down on those things. And so uh, as part of that plan, I moved down to Columbia. It is cheaper here. It is a, I I can keep a great rhythm uh, and routine as a writer here. It is a forcing function in that I am less likely to, on a whim, decide I'm going to go to this conference or that conference. Um, But, you know, in that pivot, in trying to gain my footing as a writer and a podcaster, and making a living out of it, you know I don't, I like couldn't afford to live where I was living before in in Chicago. Um, so those those are potential sacrifices, though, and this could be a little bit of ad hoc rational or post hoc res- rationalization, but they don't feel like big sacrifices. I don't I don't feel like a great uh, deal of regret or. Or, or loss over those things, I guess if I did, then I wouldn't have made the quote unquote sacrifices in the first place because everything is is a trade off. Yeah.
2: yeah. I had this piece uh, on medium that uh, went pretty viral titled the five things I had to give up to be successful. Mm. And I think at the beginning of it, I said, uh, there's no, nothing that you want that doesn't come at the cost of something else. Everything in your life has an opportunity cost. And you will have to give up something to get what you want more than anything in the world. Uh, I wonder, when you make such a drastic change to your external environment, like moving out of a country, does it help to undo the social programming that's been so deeply embedded in your life early on? Oh, wow.
1: Absolutely. Um, I will say that by the time I did move down here, it, it, it already felt like it was my home. Uh, I had already been coming to Medellin for uh, several years. I first came six years ago for a couple months uh, and I kept coming back every six months or so. I started a relationship down here and uh, just started to grow to the point where uh, I fell n- not necessarily out of love with Chicago, but Chicago didn't have its grip on me the same way that it did uh, previously. And I, um, and then, and then move down here. Now, one of the really interesting things that uh, would happen whenever I would come down here is, as you can imagine, Colombia is a very different culture. It's especially very different in terms of uh, a sense of time, the sense of patience in that, um, you know, if there's a long line at the grocery store, there can be a 20, 30-minute line at the grocery store, and people aren't really complaining. They just kind of Put there's some plastic chairs. They put them down. And they sit sit down their their grandmother in the plastic chair and and they wait. And uh, Americans we're not like that. I'm certainly not like that, or at least not by nature. And uh, I find it a a really useful sort of patience therapy for me because what I would see happening is uh, this idea of time and 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 various other things. Whenever I would come down here, it would. It, there would be some friction for the first few weeks, the first several weeks. And then usually I would hit like, there would be something that would happen where I would kind of have a meltdown because I just can't take it anymore. Like things aren't, aren't working, uh, things are taking too long, uh, nobody seems to care about uh, any sort of urgency in things. And I would kind of have a meltdown. And then right after that, I would suddenly be in the rhythm with things and I'm and I'm feeling relaxed and I am feeling more present and I'm and I'm not feeling insecure about the types of things that I feel insecure about when I'm in the United States. And that was a really interesting experience, especially because then I would come back to Chicago, because I would come here every winter for a couple months. And then I would go back to Chicago and it would be like I was watching animals in an aquarium or something like I could see the way that the, you know, we all, no matter where you live, there's a cultural programming, the matrix that is, uh, that is shaping people's behavior. And I could see people's behavior being shaped by maybe their insecurities or uh, by what they feel like they want from the world, uh, by their expectations. And I could see all of that, but slowly and surely I would be right back with them after several weeks to where I'm like, why is this person taking so long to get on the bus? Or, you know, just like losing my patience. Maybe I would hold on to a little bit or, or, or piece that that would um, that would stick with me. But sure enough, the cultural programming uh, mm-hmm. would uh, would take over wherever I was. Now, I repeated that process a number of times to now I've got a a better sense of, you know, who I am, but Hey, I still just had a meltdown the other day because, because I was calling to order something because you have to call people on the phone here. They're not, they're not really into texting or <laughs> so much. And, it, you know, it took 11 minutes to order something to be, <laughs> to, to be delivered to my house. And I just like couldn't take it on top of all the other things that were, that were going wrong. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a part, it's an exercise that, uh, is interesting to me. And I guess now that I'm speaking about it, I'm realizing that, you know, maybe it has something to do with the fact that I have, uh, you know, undoing cultural programming in myself has been, uh, such an important thing that I really enjoy the process of watching, uh, how your, your culture, uh, affects your thoughts or, you know, I'm in a, re- in a relationship. My girlfriend uh, doesn't speak English and, you know, we've been in a relationship for a few years now. And, um, and there's always fascinating things to learn about, uh, about how perceptions are different. And I think that gives you a, a better sense or it equips you with the ability. If you have the, um the fortitude, because it can also cause existential crises. Uh, it can, it can arm you with the ability to, uh, to really get to know yourself and to decide what is right for you and the way that you view the world and the way that you would like to do things.
2: Wow. Uh, well, speaking of existential crises, I think you and I share one very, uh, common experience of having a book, uh, reach sort of the heights of success, uh, you know, being at the top of, of uh, Amazon. I both, both with self-published books. And I remember thinking, this is going to set such an unrealistic expectation. How do you not get attached to this idea of, okay, wow, I've just written a wall street journal bestseller. And I know for a fact that my other two books are a thousand times more Mm well-written. They haven't sold as many copies. Uh, it's kind of that, that whole, Elizabeth Gilbert thing, right? Where you've had this freakishly unexpected success, uh, how do you get back to who you were prior to that without losing your mind?
1: Yeah, it's a long process. So I think what you're referring to is my first book, Design for Hackers. It actually was a traditionally published book. Uh, ah, it okay. made it to the top 20 on Amazon, not a Wall Street Journal bestseller, but in its niche. That, that's insane. Um, and so that was a really insane thing. And that was uh, that was an experience that really messed with my head in a lot of ways. And I, I, I've i been thinking about that. Um I guess one. It was funny because in in some ways, having that accomplishment happen was. (laughs) I'm like ashamed to admit this. I I sort of felt like, oh yeah, of course. Like I, uh, I have believed myself to be somebody with something to offer the world. Um, I I have believed myself to be this smart, great person for so long. And now finally it's validated. And so maybe that helped uh, me get to that point because I really did feel very driven to uh, to be known or to to do something notable. Um, And uh, and so when that happened, then it was like, yeah, okay, yeah, of course. But it was also uh, an experience that I didn't. Necessarily know how to deal with, and I didn't know a ton of people to to share that with. I mean, suddenly I'm getting flown all over the world, and and um, you know I I might be rec- I'll be recognized at conferences. People want to come up and talk to me and, and and stuff, and I didn't necessarily know how to deal with it. And um, uh, it reminds me of my recent conversation with uh, Adam Conover, who created uh, Adam Ruins Everything. And he had this really successful sketch group in, in college. They were like one of the first groups to have, you know, viral comedy videos. And, uh, and then after college, he decided he was going to dedicate himself to comedy and he, and then the group broke up and he thought, well, oh, this is going to be easy because obviously I'm, you know, one of the funniest people in the world. Cause I was so successful at this thing. And it turned out, no, he was right down at, 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 uh, rung one of the ladder and uh, it was many years of going to open mics uh, before he arrived on the idea that became Admiral, Admiral is everything. And so, um, you know, it was six years between me publishing that book and publishing my latest book, The Heart to Start, <laughs> which uh, is aptly titled because that was the struggle that I went through: it was just uh, teaching myself to to start uh, again and to to recognize that okay, there was a lot of luck that played. In, uh, in in my first book success and it wasn't necessarily just because you're the smartest person and the coolest person in the world then that you can just write about anything and people are going to be interested in it no you've got to reach back into yourself you have to reconnect with your curiosities you have to have the bravery to explore those things down these um, these 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 unbeaten paths that it takes you and you have to trust that they're all going to converge in into something uh that is uh true to you and that does something for people as well and um and so so that was a long process and it, it has made me very um i appreciate it a lot because it's made me very uh skeptical of praise in that you know praise is nice, it's great when you have success it's great when Seth Godin endorses your book uh th- things like that, but at the same time, you just gotta um let it feel good for a moment, but then just remember that it, it means nothing, and if you let it mean something that it's going to interfere with uh with what's important to to doing work that uh that is true and and work that resonates with people again. Hmm.
2: Wow. Well, I, I think that makes a really uh, nice place to finish uh, a really eye-opening and thought-provoking conversation. So I want to finish with my final question, which I know heard, you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Ah, <laughs> there's this great quote uh, by Georgia O'Keeffe. Georgia O'Keeffe, of course, one of the most important painters of the 20th century, very famous for her paintings her close-ups of uh, flowers, her uh, New Mexico landscapes. And uh, before I say this, I'll, I'll let you know that Georgia O'Keefe was a, was a, was a, a kind of snarky, misanthrop- misanthropic character, so much to the point that uh, she once hired a deaf housekeeper so she wouldn't feel pressured to uh, have conversation. Um, so this fan asks her, Georgia, why don't you sign your paintings? And that's a great question. Like, why would an artist not sign a painting? That's, that's how you, you know the painting is done, right? Because it's, it's signed. And her response was, why don't you sign your face? And, uh, it's a snarky response because you can just add your face to anything and it makes it sound snarky, but it's also really brilliant because you instantly recognize that, oh yeah, like a face, there's, there's nothing more unmistakable than a face. You can, you can run into a person two years after meeting them for five minutes and you're like, "I, I know you from somewhere. I recognize your face. Uh, And so where does a face come from? A face comes from uh, probably our our DNA. Now, where does what we create come from? um, I think that uh, uh, Twyla Tharp would call it our creative DNA is where our creations come from. Now, that actually can sound kind of depressing because what can you do about your DNA? What can you do about your genetics? Well, it turns out there's this field of uh, epigenetics which has shown that our behavior and our experiences shape our gene expression that you might have certain genes but they kind of get switched on and off based upon your behaviors and so you can do the same thing with your creative dna that you you if you want to make something unmistakable you start with your your DNA, which might be influences uh, from various other related artists or from philosophy or whatever. But at the same time, you're taking action so that you are using that DNA to create things. And in that process, you're discovering something about, uh, about your DNA and you're expressing your creative DNA in this new way. And I think that's ultimately what makes something Unmistakable is the ability to to uh, be influenced by something but also take actions to uh, truly find your personal creative DNA.
2: Hmm. Wow, well, I think that makes a really beautiful and poetic end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to?
1: Oh, thank you so much for for asking. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have a podcast called Love Your Work. Srini is on the podcast as a guest. I also have uh, talked to Seth Godin and James Altucher and uh, behavioral scientists and dancers and chefs. Uh, kind of a lot of overlap between the interests that you would you would have if you were listening to, to uh, Unmistakable Creative and if you were listening to, to Love Your Work. New book is uh, is The Heart to Start. I am active on Twitter at Cadavy and the blog is cadavy.net.
5: So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.
3: Have you ever felt
0: a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. that enhances your unique human skills. The 4Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com 4Keys. Use the number 4, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com 4Keys and download your free copy.